So how did, how did it all go down, Adam? Like, how did, um, how'd you get caught? You know, we were, we were probably being investigated for about two years. I mean, it's no secret. Um, we were on, you know, I ran with a bunch of guys down in Newark. We were always on this. They had this, supposedly had this blacklist in the Newark, Delaware Police Department office with all of our names on it. It was like hmm. 50 or 60 guys, brothers, cousins, other younger brothers, all coming up through the ranks. Cause you know, we weren't in like a named gang, but we were kind of an unwritten gang, you know? And, and once the, the officers found out you were affiliated with this crew of guys, you got put on a list and we would always been on that list. So they always knew who we were, but we, you know, back to the, wearing jeans and t-shirts and driving low profile cars. They just thought we were a bunch of knuckleheads drinking beer, doing a lot of bar fighting, selling low level drugs just to get by. So they kind of left us alone unless something major happened. Hi, my name is Scott Switzer and I am the Clydesdale. My friends, Amy Rudowski, Charlie Yodi, Kat Shear, love fitness as a sport as much as I do. We are all 40-plus Masters Age athletes who give all we have to lead a healthy, active life. We also want to bring you athlete interviews, human interest stories, and all the news surrounding the sport of fitness. If you like what you hear, consider giving us a five-star rating and writing a review. We are also available with full video on YouTube at the Clydesdale Fitness and Friends Podcast as well as all traditional podcast platforms. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at the Clydesdale underscore fitness and friends. And now off to this week's episode of the Clydesdale fitness and friends podcast. Hey everyone. Welcome to the Clydesdale Fitness and Friends. My name is Scott Switzer. I am your host and I am the Clydesdale. We love to do fitness and I do this with my friends. Today I've got Kat with me. Uh, Hello. The others are Amy's on vacation and Charlie had to go to a birthday party. Uh, but we have Adam Kramer as our special guest today. Hey, Adam. Hey, how are you? Glad I'm to be great. on. Uh, Adam is with the Green Beret Project, and we're so excited to hear that. Um, but it was a long journey to, for him to get from where he was uh, to that Green Beret Project. So let's start from the beginning, Adam. Um, you you grew up in Delaware. So I grew up around Wilmington and Newark, Delaware. Um, you know, I grew up in a local private school, went on to a public high school. And, uh, you know, during my time at the public high school, it was super big change for me a uh, lot more freedom from private school to a uh, public school and athletics had always been a major major part of my life what what sports did you play uh baseball football and wrestling but you know i wasn't even like baseball was my thing i played baseball three seasons out of the year and i basically just you know played football and wrestling to stay in shape for baseball um you know my father always pushed you know you could pick what any sport you want just pick a sport for each season 
And he was trying to keep you busy? Yeah, trying to keep me busy. Uh, I was a very active kid, liked to work a lot. You know, chores were a huge part of discipline with my dad and, and my mother. You know, you get in trouble at school, you're working all weekend on the house or in the yard, that type of thing. And then your parents ended up getting a divorce. Uh, parents got divorced around 12 years old. Um, you know, even before I get into any of that, I just like to put out there, have a great relationship with my mom and my dad now. You know, we went through a lot of rocky times over the past 20, 25 years or so. But currently, today, you know, I have a good relationship with mom and dad, which is uh, pretty awesome. But, you know, backing it up, 1992, 12 years old, parents got divorced. My mom was diagnosed with, uh, it was, she was diagnosed with breast cancer, um, terminal breast cancer. And, you know, for a 12 year old, that, that, that was hard to deal with. Um, I dealt with it a lot through anger and disobedience, rebellion. I, uh, you know, started acting out. I mean, I always acted out in school, even when they were together, but then, you know, once it hit 12 years old, it was, it was getting more rampant. Uh, I think I was just seeking a lot of attention, you know, was missing the uh, strong discipline of a man in my life at that point. And sports kind of became a secondhand thing once I got to high school. Um, so what, what took over uh, in high school? I think I had, you know, I had more freedom. So I got expelled from the private school <laughs> okay. in eighth grade, which is why I did not go on to a private high school. You know, we got to the point where nobody wanted to deal with me. So it was like, well, we're going to put him in public school because private schools, he's just going to get expelled anyway. So what took over, you know, my mother was doing her best. But at the end of the day, the discipline from my mother was not exactly what I needed. And uh, plus, I had more freedom being in a public high school. You know, it was easier to leave school whenever I wanted, come to school. Nobody was really paying attention to us. You know, the coaches paid attention a little bit, but eventually the off-field performance of getting arrested off the field and, uh, you know, causing trouble in the school was getting overwhelming. And, you know, there's other kids that, that were playing sports as well. So so in, in your freshman year, you turned to some other things for entertainment uh, as away from sports and, and more into the drug scene. Yeah, so, you know... Even a little bit before freshman year, I started drinking a lot. And uh, I think it was more of an escape. You know, first it was like, ah, oh, you know, the boys, you know, in the woods are going to drink some alcohol, boys on the block. And then, uh, you know, that's just escalated into drugs. And uh, we needed money for drugs. So quickly I found out how to take $100 and flip the $100 into another $100 and then take that $100 and buy more weed with the money so by by friday i just made 500 dollars, and i had all the free drugs i wanted all weekend long and once that, I, that's a very different flip or flop right there yeah. <laughs> well you know not having any any money to buy drugs you figure out a way how to do it and uh you know we hung around some pretty sharp kids and you know trying to live the double life of the athlete and the drug scene only lasted for about a season or so. 
before, you know, coaches really started seeing uh, different attitude, different um, physical element of what I what they knew I was capable of. I mean, I was on my way to full ride Division One baseball career. You know, I was, you know, at best maybe D3 football, D2 football guy. And, you know, I could hold my own in wrestling, but everything was going downhill from doing too many drugs on the weekend and then doing drugs throughout the week. And then they start seeing you run with different crews inside the high school. You know, I, I can see now, you know, as a, as a, me coaching teenagers, you can see everything from a bird's eye view. But when you're the teenager, you think you're getting away with everything and people can't see what you're doing. But the coaches, they knew what was going on. And uh, eventually, they, you know, they just wanted to not to deal with it. So when did, when did the drug thing become a full-time gig? Well, so it, I'd say, you know, you know, I started selling drugs and I never stopped until I was 27 years old for 12 years straight. I just sold drugs and it escalated to different drugs though. Uh, yeah, I started, you know, using a lot of cocaine. Um, so my, you know, cocaine alcohol was, was just what I like to use. And, uh, I, you know, I stopped smoking weed. I was around 17 years old. I like more, uh, you know, I guess you could say adventure. I don't, I don't know, but the cocaine was more compelling to my, persona I guess and uh so we were selling a lot of cocaine selling a lot of marijuana still and um you know it just got to be more quantity and more money as the years went on so by the time we get to college I was making you know maybe a couple hundred k but at the same time you know I was going to a local university basically because when I was 18 years old you know I Believe it or not, I graduated an honor roll <laughs> from the high school. And uh, I had about, I'd say, 15 arrests under my belt by the time I was 18. And uh, the Division One school had, you know, that, that was gone, completely gone. I jumped in the local electrical union. I worked in the union for the summer, and I couldn't handle waking up every day, 730 and getting off at 3.30, 7.30 a.m., 3.30 p.m. I, I couldn't handle the schedule, partying way too much, decided to go to a local university, went to the local university, was working a lot of uh, side bricklaying jobs, but at the same time, I was always, always selling drugs. And, who uh, are you, Adam, who were you selling to? Were you, did being in school help sort of widen your audience, or were you like hanging out with people that were older than you and so we had a large network. There were people that were older than us that kind of guided us through, kind of like mentors, if you will. But then being at a local college and, and knowing other college students helped us um, broaden the network, uh, helped us to, you know, just reach other kids that were at different universities down the East Coast or maybe up in Jersey. And then, you know, that's where the, the marketing of the drug selling was it was blowing up to a point where we we didn't even you know I would think some days I, I don't even know how we're doing this you know it just got it just got so big because we we got good at it basically and, and then, then and then that became kind of a lifestyle for you right like the yeah. the money and the travel and like what were some of the crazy things you did yeah traveling you know, by, wise. The, by the time you're 21 22 years old uh, we had 
you know, we had a uh, townhome in the city of Wilmington, but then we also had a townhome downtown Philadelphia. And then even like a year later, we had an, another small apartment in New York City. Then I had basically bedrooms inside of apartments down in Tampa Bay, Myrtle Beach, Dewey Beach, Delaware. So I was constantly on the move from all those towns. Um, and I'm assuming nice cars and... So believe it or not, I tried my best to keep a low profile because if anybody, you know, Kat knows this, being in Delaware, it's everybody knows everybody. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if they see Adam driving around in some fancy Porsche or whatever car I decide to get, you know, they're going to know. So, you know, I had, a, I had a Lincoln LS and a Ford Taurus, believe it or not, for most of that time because I was trying my best to live under the radar. Uh, my buddy, you know, my buddy had a, he had a big fancy car and some of the older guys that were helping us were like, you guys need to get out of town because this guy can't stop being flashy. So that was part of the plan to get up to Philly and New York city. So you can spend as much money as you want and nobody blinks an eye, right? You can, you can blend in the city and disguise yourself in a city, however you want in a big city. Can't disguise yourself in Wilmington but you could disguise yourself up Philly, New York. So that's, that's some of the reasons we moved out of town and then still did a lot of business in Delaware, a lot of business all the way down the East coast. And by the, the end of this, you guys were making reportedly 10 million. Yeah. I mean, that's what the newspaper says. That's what they said in federal court. <laughs> I mean, so how, how did it all go down, Adam? Like how did, um, how'd you get caught? You know, we were we were probably being investigated for about two years. I mean, it's no secret. Um, we were on, you know, I ran with a bunch of guys down in Newark. We were always on this. They had this, supposedly had this blacklist in the Newark, Delaware Police Department office with all of our names on it. There was like hmm. 50 or 60 guys, brothers, cousins, other younger brothers all coming up through the ranks. Cause you know, we weren't in like a named gang, but we were kind of an unwritten gang, you know? And, and once the, the officers found out you were affiliated with this crew of guys, you got put on a list and we would always been on that list. So they always knew who we were, but we, you know, back to the, wearing jeans and t-shirts and driving low profile cars. They just thought we were a bunch of knuckleheads drinking beer, doing a lot of bar fighting, selling low level drugs just to get by. So they kind of left us alone unless something major happened. But then once they started investigating and finding a lot of other drug dealers in the uh, local neighborhoods and they're constantly tied to me and my partner, like lots of them were constantly tied to me and my partner. So they started doing a little bit more investigating and found out, wow, these are the two guys that, that we didn't think were doing it. They, we, they just thought we were like two of the local small time drug peddling people. These are actually the two guys that are bringing in massive amounts of marijuana into the community, into the university. And then when they found they, they, you know, start doing some math and they're like, wow, these guys are making a lot of money right under our noses. And so they, from, you know, I don't know the specifics because I'm not the DEA, but from what I could gather, they were doing an investigation for at least two years on us. They 
they caught people in in Jersey, Philly, Delaware, Baltimore, and Tampa Bay before they got me. And what they do is they build a case and uh, and then they come get their man. So they came and got my buddy and then they came and got me. And it went down. Uh, I knew they were coming. I got a tip from one of the guys. Had He actually called my mother and told my mother what was going on. And, oh, and my mom reached out to me. You know, I had... You know, I had a, at one point in time, I had 250 phone numbers, you know, and, and I would just use a different phone number for different people. And, but, you know, my mother had this one number for me and she got a hold of me and she said, listen, DEA are looking for you. They're getting mad. They can't find you. You need to come home, meaning just come home to Newark, Delaware. So I, I went home to Newark, Delaware. I actually, I mean, I remember this very vividly on September 25th, 2007, I had a court case up in Philly for a, a DUI and it was my third or fourth DUI. I don't know. So the, the judge said, Mr. Kramer, I'm sensing you to one to two years today. And they put me in cuffs and were going to take me to state prison that day. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I had no idea how things work up here. I lived down in Delaware. I was completely, you know, lying at this point. And then I said, I have a business to run in Wilmington. <laughs> And none of my employees know I'm getting locked up today. This isn't fair. And, and the judge said, uncuff him. I was shocked. The judge said, uncuff him. And he, he said, Mr. Kramer, you have 72 hours to report, to get your business, you know, in order. And you report back here September 28th at 6 p.m. And if you are not server when you show up, I'll make sure you do the maximum two years. And I just said, I gave him a thumbs up and just smiled and walked right out of there. I had oh knew that the feds were all over me. So I go back to Newark. I'm, I'm staying at my mom's house. And uh, I, 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 was, I was completely out of control. I went down to Main Street, Newark, which Kat knows about. And, you know, there's a couple college bars down there. And I'm drinking one night. And I get in a little bar fight. And uh <laughs> The Newark police roll up and they're like, Mr. Kramer, where are you living? And I looked at the, the officer. I said, you know, I've been on the run. You know, I'm living at the hotel down the street. Why don't you just call this agent? And I'm not going to leave his name out of it. I'm, I said, why don't you just call agent so-and-so and tell him to come pick me up? I'm tired of running. And she said, I don't know what you're talking about. I said, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Or you wouldn't have rolled up on me and called me by my name. And then she, she froze because she knew I had her. So I said, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do you a favor here. Since you won't take me into the station or call the agent in charge, I'm going to have you take me back to my mom's house. You tell them to come get me tomorrow. Because I have to report back to this jail tomorrow up in Pennsylvania. And she said, okay. <laughs> So she wow. took me to my mom's. I spent the night. I woke up in the morning and, uh, you know, all day went by. I go out of my mom's pool deck. I come back in. My stepfather was going to take me up to this jail. And I'm thinking in my head, like, where are these guys and when are they going to come get me? I had seen them driving around the neighborhood. And uh, I walked back out of the back deck and there was probably 20 agents out there jumped over the roof, jumped over the fences from all directions. Um, you know, and rightfully so I have a lot of resisting arrest charges on my jacket. So they took me into custody and, uh, 
and that was September 28th, 2007. That was the last day, you know, last sip of alcohol I ever had, last cigarette, drug, anything I've ever, ever done because I, you know, that was the, the literally the day it was the beginning of the rest of my life. But it was, it was a wild summer. I, I knew that the feds were chasing us for a fact. I went to point to point, which Kat also knows about. There's these horse races and, uh, I fell off the back, you know, drinking again, fell off the back of a pickup truck. This guy approached me. He said, what's up, boy? And and I jumped up right away. And I'm like, who do you think you're talking to? And he said, don't worry, Kramer. You'll know who I am soon enough. Uh... And another guy that I was with knew that he was a DEA agent. So at that point, I'm like, wow. Now that I know for sure, even though all my assumptions, you know, they've all come true. And I said to myself, I just want to have one last summer. So I took a couple hundred thousand bucks and I just traveled up and down the East Coast. They had kicked in my door up in Philly, down to Wilmington. And uh, I just traveled up and down the East Coast, just partying and uh, trying wow. to live one last summer. And it all came crashing down. So that lasted from May 5th to September 28th, all in 2007. So you Pretty stood much. trial. Uh, you were found guilty. Well, so I, I pled guilty. Oh, you, you pled guilty. I, because I, I, they had me. If I <laughs> pled not guilty, I'd still be in, I'd probably still be in prison. Wow. So what were you facing? You, you knew that you were pleading guilty. Did you, did you have an idea of what the sentence was going to be? So at first, you know, they're like, oh, we're giving you life for organized crime. And I'm like, no, you're not. There's no, you're not. That's not happening. Um, but they, they tried to hold that over my head for a couple months. And then they said, okay, well, maybe we'll work with 40 years here. And I'm like, come on, man. We were, I know we we're making 10, $12 million, you know, large scale marijuana case, a little bit of cocaine, a couple keys, kilos of cocaine, whatnot. But um, I say it was a nonviolent case. It was a nonviolent case on our end, but that doesn't mean that somewhere along the chain of drug dealing, there wasn't some type of violence, but on our end, there was no violence, which does help in, in, in the court system. There were no guns on our case. Well, there was one straw purchase gun on our case, but there was no, you know, real big time guns on our case. And uh, so I'm like, look, we're not getting 40 years either, you know, and, and that lasted like another year. So it's like 18 months, 24 months in, in jail at this point. And they, uh, they came back, they were like, okay, well, maybe we'll do 18 to 22 years. And I said, okay, I can do that. I already got about two and a half years in. Uh, I do 85% of that time. Let's go. So 36 months, three years, I was in federal prison holdover awaiting to get sentenced, not knowing what was going to happen. And, uh, that was a hard time because you don't see, I didn't see grass. I wasn't outside for three years. I, uh, you know, it was like the, the best and the worst time of my life. This is the first time I was sober as an adult. Worst time because I was facing the worst external circumstances of my life, but I felt great internally, which is kind of hard to explain. You know, I started, started reading the Bible a lot and, uh, I got a bachelor's degree in theology within that time. 
working out every, you know, almost every day. So, you know, kind of helped me sit back and think, you know, cause at first you go through the feelings of a failure. Um, you know, I'm, I had all these things going for me in high school and, and it just all came crashing down because I made a lot of bad decisions. It turned into more bad decisions all the way that landed me 10 years later in, in a federal prison facing a lot of time in jail. So I potentially have to start rebuilding my life when I'm in my forties or fifties. Right. But I just, yeah. I just so decided you, uh, I was going to start. Yeah. You said you uh, read the Bible and you were working yeah. out a lot. So yeah. let's kind of dive into both of those. So yeah. how important was your faith and the Bible to turning yourself around? I mean, it, it was everything, right? That, that was number one. Um, <laughs> you know, I was, I was very angry kind of guy and I didn't care who knew it. I treated the, the COs, the pastors, the volunteer Bible study guys, the inmates. I treated them all the same. If I, and it just got so, my anger got so bad. I didn't even know why I was angry with people. I couldn't even remember why I was angry with you. I remember there was this guy, um, still friends with this guy to this day. He was a, a blood gang member from Jersey City. He ended up doing about 12 years. He, he came up to me and he said, I'm praying for you, Kramer. And I said, I'm not a scared white boy. I'll, I'll put you in that cell and we're going to fight. I dare you to tell me you're praying for me again. Mm-hmm. And, and then there was another buddy of his that uh, this guy would have just completely wiped the floor with me. He said, hey, you can't stop me from praying for you back in my cell at night and I knocked this Bible on the floor. But then I would, you know, I went back to my cell and thinking in my head, even as a criminal, I can't justify being angry at these guys. They're just saying they're praying for me. Right. Um, so that, that was super important. You know, I'd go down to Bible study every Monday and cuss out the pastor for like two months and uh, just try to take him off his stoop, make him angry. Nothing broke this guy. And, uh, there was this other pastor dude that used to come in. He was, you know, he had done like 18 years in prison and between those two guys, the inmates and, uh, and the chaplain, there's this chaplain guy. It's so ironic. The chaplain was a green beret back in the sixties and seventies. And I had no idea. It was pretty unique how one of my first real mentors in faith was a green beret. Hmm. Uh, it was pretty cool. So, you know, mix in, that's literally all I was doing was reading the Bible, studying that. And then, you know, we'd work out twice a day. We had a pull-up bar. Um, we had some def- deficit push-up, you know, tools or whatever, what do you call them? And parallettes. Yeah, parallettes. And we had um, a basketball court. So that's, that's what we did. So just one more question about your faith. Yeah. What- what was the turning point? Where did, when did you stop being angry? Was there a it, was, it was like, it took like a year, right? There was a year of 2000. So I got locked up in, in September, 2007, still for like four or five months, super angry. Somewhere early on in 2008 is when I finally just broke down. And the pastor dude was like, read, you know, John chapter three. And I'm like, whatever, I'll go back and do it. And, and, and I'll prove to you that this isn't going to work. And I went back and read John chapter three, but then I, you know, the type of guy I am, I read the whole new Testament three days <laughs> because I, I knew, like, I, I really couldn't even understand it, but it just kind of, uh, you know, as I was reading it, there were bits and pieces of it that were kind of putting me 
at some peace that I haven't really felt in a long time. And it, it was wild that it was able to put me at that peace considering what I was facing, right? So there was like a, I, I can't say there's like, oh, this one big aha moment where I wasn't angry anymore. It kind of took like a year, you know, to, to really like, you know, forgive people for what they've done or me, me say apologize to a lot of people and kind of accept the actions of what I was doing and stop blame shifting. You know, cause for a while I would say, well, I wouldn't be in jail. 15 people didn't tell on me, mm. you know, but I wasn't accepting the fact that what I was doing was criminal activity. So once I accepted the fact to be like, Hey, I was a criminal. I was, I was dead wrong. I poisoned a lot of the community. I have no idea, you know, what other people had, how they have been affected due to my drug dealing. You know, so I, you know, all these feelings were coming up and I was able to deal with them face on with the chaplain, with some of the pastors, even with some of the older inmate guys, you know, so that just, it literally consumed my time dealing with, uh, you know, I, I personally feel my alcohol use and cocaine use was a symptom of my problem. You know, I was just using that to escape my reality. So, you know, learning about all that type of stuff and uh, kind of that being lifted off my shoulders was, was, was awesome. And so, so back to I've never felt better internally, but I was facing the worst external circumstances of my life. 2008 was super wild for me. Like I felt great, but I'm, I'm sitting in this maximum security prison, not knowing how much time I'm going to do here. So I just kept doing what made me feel good, which was reading the Bible, fellowshipping with other inmates and working out. And that's, you know, because I've always been loved athletics and, you know, I just love playing all types of competitive sports, whatever they are. So we, we had basketball. So I got, you know, played a lot of basketball at the time. So you said that um, you didn't know what you were being sentenced to at that point. So yeah. I know that you eventually become a coach in prison. Right. Uh, so did that happen before or after you knew your sentence? That was after. Okay. After. So, so I, I, okay. Go ahead I with got, that story. I had got sentenced, um, ended up getting seven years. And once you go from, uh, maximum security federal holdover they they take you down to a um, classification jail you kind of sit there for a month and then they send you off to your destination prison so my destination prison happened to be fort dix new jersey there's about five thousand inmates there um and when the the day you get there you meet your counselor so i meet my counselor i had no idea what was going to happen the counselor says go find a job and i was like come again <laughs> he said you need to go find a job just like you're out in the real world go on interviews go find a job you have two weeks to report back if you do not find a job in two weeks one of two things is going to happen you're either going to go to the kitchen and like it or you're going to tell me you don't want to go to the kitchen i'm going to put you in the hole for six months ah, okay wow. i mean and i like to work so i'm like okay so I went out on a compound, started asking people. And, uh, you know, I, I do what most guys 
you know, I'm just going to say it, you know, most white guys in, in a prison, they'll go straight to the construction sites. So I went straight to the, uh, there was a landscaper shop. There was a HVAC shop, electrical shop, boiler shop, a mason shop. And uh, the landscaping team ended up picking me up. And I was the weed whacker. I was on the weed whacking team for five months. It was okay. But, uh, you know, so now I'm five months into prison. I start asking around. You know, I wanted a better paying job. I was getting paid 24 cents an hour, if you could believe that. But 24 cents an hour, 40 hours a week, you get a paycheck once a month. And uh, I'm like, well, I want something that, that will benefit me more. And, uh, you know, something where I can make more money. So I started asking around, I wanted to work in the gym. And they were like, ah, you're never going to get one of those jobs. You have to be here for like four years, five years before they'll even consider taking you in the gym. It's like not that many people work in the gym. And then I'm like, okay, well, what about there's the gym and then there was a fitness department. So I'm, I went to the fitness department and I'm like, man, I really, you know, I started taking some circuit training classes. I took some spin classes and I'm like, I want to, I want to work here. I want to coach these classes. And they're like, man, you've been here for five months. You're no, you can't have this job. And I just kept being persistent. There was this guy, he mentored, he was my first, I'd say fitness mentor. His name was young Kim. He was from North Korea. And, uh, he looked like Bolo. He was short. He was stocky. He had a long black ponytail. And, uh, he had been on the compound for about 22 years at that point. And, uh, he was like, Quema, I will hire you. And I'm like, all right. And it, it got pretty ugly for a while because a lot of guys on the compound got mad that I got the job after being there for five months and they had been waiting four or five years to get there. Hmm. So I just used to walk back and forth to the, to the prison block with Kim by my side for about the first six months because I didn't know guys were so mad. They'll just, they do all types of crazy stuff in a prison. So I would, Kim was a safe guy. Nobody would do anything to Kim. If people knew I was with Kim, they won't do anything to me. So I hung out with Kim a lot. Not to mention, he had also been reading the Bible for about 25 years. And uh, he was in a few prisons before he got to Fort Dix. So I was with Kim. He hired me as the advanced circuit trainer. And uh, I would get 30 new inmates every three months to coach. Uh, and they would come to me three days a week for an hour. And we had, we had the, uh, you know, the two sided kettlebells type. They're like a medicine ball with two handles. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. They're real old school. And we had a bunch of those, uh, you know, every, anywhere from five pounds all the way up to 30 pounds. And I had, uh, we had some other stuff, you know, like stuff we, we probably shouldn't have had, but <laughs> like steel pipes and some ribbons we made to put the ribbons on the steel pipes and put the kettlebells on the edge so we could do squats, presses, like real lightweight stuff that you could do lots of reps with. And uh, so that's a t style of coaching I was doing where doing a lot of uh, stationary work, you know, all right, 30 seconds at this station, 15 seconds to get to the next station. So we would do a lot of circuit training in that, in that way, a push day, a pull day and a leg day. And, uh, it was just a great time. And then, you know, Kim was teaching me everything he knew. And then he hooked up, uh, 
ACE, you know, the American Council on Exercise, we were able to get ACE certified in the prison. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it cost 374 bucks, took it. Uh, the, the correction officer acted as the proctor and we took the test. A couple of us passed, some of us failed. And, you know, I passed the test and now I was a certified personal trainer inside a federal prison. And I did that for three years. I've trained, I've trained some wild, wild guys in a prison, like five-star generals in the bloods, Italian mob dudes, Russian mob dudes, bank robbers, you name it. I mean, it was, it was pretty wild time. Have you ever reunited with anybody that you coached in prison outside yeah. of prison? Uh, there's, there's one guy in particular, uh, this young guy, he lives out in Manassas, Virginia. Actually, there's another guy up in uh, Portland, Maine too. I've, I've been, so I went up to the Portland, Maine, my, my buddy, Dave, I've been up to his house, stayed for a week. It's pretty fun time. And then my, the other young guy, He's been actually out to Delaware to see me and I've been out to Virginia to see him. It's pretty cool. So, so how long did you end up serving then? Did you serve that full seven years? So I ended up getting an eight, like a, so I got a, ended up actually getting a six year sentence from the feds and I got a two year sentence from Pennsylvania state prison. And I ended up serving six and a half years off the eight. Okay. So while I was in federal prison, I was a circuit trainer. I was in a softball league. I was an all-star third baseman. So that kind of like, you know, that, that lifted my spirits a lot. I was able to, even though it was softball, I was able to get back on the diamond and uh, played racquetball and handball probably five days a week. So, and you were, and you were keeping your nose clean. Keeping my nose clean. I was mentoring young guys in the faith. I had an older guy mentoring me, um, you know, just trying to stay. Cause usually when you go to a federal prison, there's, you know, a bunch of guys will approach you and they just say, who, who are you with? You know, mm -hmm. are you with, uh, you know, are you skinhead? Are you, what gang are you in? Or, you know, right away they know what state you're from because you, you have five numbers, a dash, and then Delaware is zero one five and your numbers right, you know, right here. So I got zero five, three, three, three dash zero one five. That means Kramer dash Delaware. You know, so everyone knows the numbers like 066 is Philly, 054 is Brooklyn, 018 is Florida. So people know who you are and where you're from right away. And then so depending where you're from, I'm from Wilmington, Delaware. There was three people on the compound from Delaware and there was not one other white guy from Delaware there. So right, alone, right away, I'm, I'm pretty much alone. So they're, who are you with? And I'm just like, I go to church and they're like, OK, that's fine. But if we see you not going to church on the regular, then we'll, we'll know. And it's kind of like, you got to pick a group. You got to pick someone to be, be with and be safe with, you know, you got to, it's all about numbers. Cause you got federal prisons a little different than the state prison. You got people from different gangs from all over the country. Um, I mean, you even got Hawaiian gangs there. And you got Mexican gangs, Puerto Rican gangs, Dominican gangs, Venezuelan gangs, the Cubans, the Italian mob, the Russian mob. You know, you got your Boston crew, Cincinnati crew, Philly crew, you name it. And it, I mean, you, you got to learn this stuff fast to know who's who. But what was unique about, so I got to be friends with all those people because I was the, I was the coach. People, right. people. It took a while, like six to nine months, but after that six to nine months, people were like, man, this guy's, 
we like him. You know, I'm an Irish Russian guy. I just, I, I talk, I say stuff, I'm direct. And once people start, you know, start, you know, start becoming friends with like the, uh, the head Puerto Rican on the compound or the head Dominican. And I was friends with the head Mexican. So once people see that, they're like, Oh, well he's friends with so-and-so. So that means we have to be friends with them too. So. So what was your plan uh, upon exiting prison? Oh man, I had all kinds of grandeur plans, you know, cause you have so much time to think. Um, you know, at first I just was like, I need to get whatever type of job I can get just to get some money flowing in the, in my pocket. Um, so that, Did that you go was back my, home. Did you get to go back home when you came out? Yeah. So I, I did not have to go to a halfway house, which was fantastic. Um, I was able to go live with my dad down in Newark, Delaware. I got a job. I called, I didn't have a driver's license cause I had, you know, I had a pending DUI in Wilmington that I had to face. So I didn't have a license. So I called this local Baptist church that was, you know, a mile away from my dad's house. And I said, I need a job. I'll clean the toilets clean the parking lot, cut the grass, paint the walls, whatever you want. And they said, we don't do that type of thing. I said, well, let me speak to the pastor then because I need, I need a job. And she said, all right, call back tomorrow. Call back the next day. They put me in touch with the facilities manager and the facilities manager said, Hey man, you know how to use a buffer? And I said, sure don't, but I'll, I'll learn. And I buffed the floors at the church for the next six months, painted the walls, did all kinds of stuff. Um, I was making eight bucks an hour. I went back to court for this DUI four months after I got out mm. and uh, they sentenced me to two months in prison. <laughs> I was like, oh, dude, gosh. I just did six and a half months. Like, come on. And, and my lawyer was like, you better take that DUI because they're only sentenced you as it's your second DUI when, you know, they, they could send you as it's your fifth. And they put you back in jail for two years. So what do you want to do? Two years or two months? And I'm like, all right, I'll take it. So no. four months. So out you of, had to go back. Yeah, I had to go back. Went oh. back to Gander Hill, which is a local county jail down in Wilmington. Um, I ended up doing seven days in the county, okay. and then they released me and put an ankle bracelet on me, and I had to do the remainder of the time house arrest, which was great because. It was, it was, it was hard, but it was good because it, I literally did not know how to live in a house. I didn't know how to live in a house because I hadn't lived in a house. You know, even during my drug dealing days, I was traveling, you know, we had maids, I was living in four star hotels. It was never really, you know, one place at one time. And then when I, you know, then living in a cell and in barracks for six and a half years and uh, the house arrest really helped me learn. This is how I function in a house it sounds funny but it, it was real so the house arrest helped i was able to work out a lot i was still able to go to work uh, so i was working a lot working out a lot in the garage and learning how to live in a house for about two months and then uh the church was like we don't we we don't have any more work for you it was time to move on and federal probation introduced me to a local nonprofit. um it was a local rowing 
nonprofit for at-risk youth. And I knew nothing about rowing, mm-hmm. but I, I was like, I told the guy, listen, I can help get the kids in shape to row better. I know I could do that. So that's where I was working there part-time. I was working in a machine shop, you know, during the day and coaching and morning and night. And, uh, you know, through the grapevine of the nonprofit tree, I met a lady that worked at the juvenile detention center, told her my story. And she was like, I would love it if you can come in and work the boys out. I said, well, you should call my federal probation officer. And if they will let me come in the local prison, that would be great. So, so she got all squared away. My fed PO said that that was great. That's when I started coaching at the local, um, federal or sorry, the local juvenile detention center. So once I'm, I'm in there, I still, you know, I had been doing CrossFit at a hard bat down in Newark, Delaware. And, uh, you know, there was a, a guy there named Ian Harden. He was like, he's also a very direct kind of guy. He was like, look, man, you should just call CrossFit and ask them to give you a L1 and tell them a little bit about yourself. And I'm like, you know what? It's not a bad idea. So I just took his advice and I called CrossFit headquarters, called some number that I found on the internet. They connected me to HQ or, you know, whoever handles that stuff. And I said, listen, this is my name. This is my story. Just got out of prison. I don't have anywhere close to a thousand bucks, but I want to coach juveniles. They said, yeah, we'll we'll do that. We'll give you, we'll give you a L1 for free. Just tell us, just email us where you want to go. Find a course and tell us. Next course was in, uh, Federal Hill, Baltimore, Maryland, and I still didn't have a license or a car, so I took a train, spent the night at a local church in the attic of the church for two nights. I love it. What a story. (laughs) And I was, you know, I took a taxi to the gym the first day, and the second day, you know, I just met some guy that was getting his L1, and I'm like, yeah, bro, I need a ride back to this church attic. (laughs) He was like, he must have thought I was he must have thought I was buck wild, man, but he gave me a ride. He picked me up on a Sunday morning, took me back, took the test, took, you know, took a taxi, got back on a train, came back to Wilmington. And this and, is uh, what, like 2016, 15? No, this was probably two, this was the beginning part, I think, of 2015. 15, okay. So now I had an L1. You know, I'm still a little shaky on CrossFit method, methodology. Sure. You know, and uh, so I, I started Googling gyms, like, who can I play off of in Delaware to, to go work at a CrossFit gym? And I was living in, in Pike Creek at the time, and I saw there's this local gym called API CrossFit. And I'm like, this is perfect because I know the guy. He used to cut my hair. He grew up with my cousins in Newcastle. So I, and, and Kat knows this guy. Kat's coached for Joe and uh, also a very direct kind of like super direct kind of guy. He's a bodybuilder by nature. He was a wrestler in high school. And I went into Joe's gym and he, he looked like he saw a ghost. You know, I hadn't seen this guy in like 15 plus years. And he knew all about my, my past. And uh, he's like, Oh, you know, I'm not going to say what he really said. It was a couple <laughs> four letter words, but he's like, Oh man, what are you doing? And I said, listen, Joe, I need a coaching job. He was like, oh, man, well, you know, there's a lot of cops that work out here. And I said, Joe, you know, half my family is law enforcement. I got cousins, uncles, grandpa. They're all local, state, federal law enforcement. 
So I need, I need you to pick me up and teach me how to coach CrossFit. And he said, I'll tell you what. He said, I'll give you a one-month membership for free. I just want you to show up and work out for a month. I, I said, okay. So I showed up for a month, you know, about five, six days a week, just started working out. And then Joe held his word and uh, he gave me a couple classes to coach. He would shadow me. There was another coach, Jen, didn't shadow me and, you know, tell me what I was doing wrong, tell me what I was doing right. And uh, I coached for Joe for about four years after that. It's pretty, pretty good time. And I'm still in contact with, with Joe to this day, but you know, there's, there's people along the way that have key, you know, pieces to my story that have really opened up a lot of doors. You know, one being Barbara Riley that helped me get in juvenile detention. One being Joe, you know, even I still keep in contact with uh, the guy, Ian Harden, that's down in Florida. You know, I'm like, hey, man, you know, that one little piece of advice you telling me to go has opened up to this to this Green Beret project, something I, you know, I could have never imagined. Um, that is really cool. That is really cool. So so how did how did the Green Beret start? Because you're, you're coaching for four years with Joey at API, and I know you spent some time coaching at the Riverfront. You know, where, where does all this sort of play in? 2016, I was still on federal probation. I had been out of prison for two years. Federal probation asked me to speak at a reentry symposium at Del Delaware State University. Uh, There's about 300 people there, including the senator's office, governor's office, local state probation, federal probation, and a bunch of other nonprofits. And they asked me to be on the, on a panel, on an ex-offender panel, and people were going to, you know, kind of just be doing this, asking us questions about how federal reentry was going and how the federal probation officers were, which I still, to this day, they were 100% on board with helping, like, federal probation in Delaware is great. They've helped guys and gals get out and be successful versus state probation. I almost went back to prison because state probation said, oh, well, you have to report. I had two Delaware probation officers for two separate DUIs and I couldn't make all the probation appointments. But, uh, and this, this is something I said at the symposium, they caught the attention of the senator's office. I said, listen, I was, I was, had a federal probation officer for international drug trafficking, money laundering, and I had two state probation officers, one for Pennsylvania state probation and one for Delaware probation. And I couldn't make all the meetings, but they said if I lost my job, they were going to violate me and put me back in jail. But if I didn't make the meetings, they were going to violate me. But you tell me I have to be there between 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. I don't have a driver's license or a car because it's a DUI case, right? So what do you want me to do? So I called federal probation. I explained to them, this is, I said, you need to help me or I'm going to go back to jail. And the federal probation officer said, look, I can handle this. I could pull my big brother card, but I'm not. I will drive you to your probation appointments. And I'm like, whatever, this is totally backwards that my (laughs) is going to drive me to my state probation officer's appointment. But she genuinely did not want me to go back to prison. Right. She, she cared. And, uh, her name was Carol. So Carol helped me out there. Carol was at the symposium. Her face got pretty red when I was just telling 300 people there in my state probation officers were there. You know, I said, listen, I know it's not state probation, you know, the, the actual officers at fault here, cause they're just getting pressed to do what they're supposed to. 
So anyway, I say that to say afterwards, the senator's office liked how I articulated that message. They came, you know, they came and got me. They said, hey, we want to meet, blah, blah, blah. I said, okay, I know you're happy right now. This is a symposium, but quite frankly, we know this isn't going to go anything past today. And she looked, you know, she was like, and this guy is wild. But I mean, I, it, it was true. She didn't contact me for about a month or two. And uh, I called her one day. I said, listen, I'm coaching at the juvenile detention centers. About 10 boys are getting out next week. They're going to shoot each other down Dover, Delaware. And I need help. I don't know anybody down there. Called her back in a week. And I said, it's me again. And I'm going to call you every week until you give me somebody that can help. She kindly told me to stop calling. And I'm still friends with this lady today. But I said, listen, I'm allowed to keep calling you. She said, I have this guy. I'm going to introduce you to him. Just give me some time. And I said, okay, you got seven days before I call back. Within that seven days, this guy called me and uh, <laughs> he says, he says, this is Justin Dowdle from the FBI. And I'm like, man, what are these people lead? Like, I'm thinking they're pulling some old case up on me. Right. Like, what have I done now? <laughs> right away, the dude tells me, listen, I'm a Christian. I do CrossFit. I've been doing CrossFit for eight or nine years. And I just started an at-risk youth program about, you know, three or four months ago called the Green Brain Project. And I need your help. And I feel you're being underutilized. And then he was he was pulling on my heartstrings and I'm like, I'm like, you're right. You know? And we talked for like three hours that day. And then, you know, we probably talked every day since he was a green beret. Multiple board members were green berets. Some of the guys on the board were in the unit in Delta. And, uh, you know, so it's great to be around a bunch of these operator type dudes. Some are current green berets. Some are, you know, still in 19th or 20th group, which is, a uh, you know, SF guard group. And it's just great to be around a bunch of guys that truly want to help the community because that's what Green Berets do. They go around the world and they, you know, they help the local community by building relationships with them. Um, and they, they train people. So Justin's idea was to go into the worst neighborhoods in Dover and just train young guys and gals to just live the right way and just give them opportunity to seek the lost talent in those communities. And uh, he had already recruited a local gym owner named George Dobbins, you know, down Dover CrossFit. So George was on board, buddy Johnny, who's a cross coach down there was on board. My buddy Rob Easton was a CrossFit coach down there. All these guys were already on board. And then I came on board and was able to start coaching these kids. And uh, so that, that was back in 2016. So were you still at the detention center or? Yep. So you're doing both. I was, I was just coaching like a couple hours a week at the detention center. I actually was a full-time foreman at a manufacturing plant. Uh, You know, like 40, 40 guy blue collar dudes work for me at the plant. I worked there from 4 a.m. to 12 p.m. I would get off work. And I worked for Ashley Biden, who was, you know, Joe Biden's daughter. She was the executive director for Delaware Center for Justice. My title there was juvenile reentry case manager. And a lot of nonprofits partnered together. So I was able to use Delaware Center for Justice and the Green Beret Project as one. And I was coaching and mentoring a lot of the kids that were coming out of Ferris going back to Dover, Delaware. So I'd meet them in the prison. Because this is the, the whole key is you meet them in the prison, build a relationship with them, so when they get out they call you, 
right? At the point of release, it, it, they're already they're already in the street, so you have to meet them way before they get out. So that was that's what I, that was the plan back then. I was coaching kids inside prison, and then I would field them when they get out. So I was a foreman from 4 a.m. to noon, and then I had all afternoon and lots of coffee drinking, coaching <laughs> these kids all day, and uh, basically just solving problems on the ground. And then you know start meeting some of the moms and some of the siblings and solving problems. Like, you know, my mom, mom's like, Oh, water pumps broke. Can't pay the bills, blah, blah, blah. It's like, Oh, well, we can, we can help you fix that water pump, you know, and then you can go back to work, you know, stuff like that. And just solving local problems, you know, that, that are s stuff that's small to us, you know, flat tire might put a family out for two weeks and then they can't pay the rent. And then, you know, they're behind and it's like, man, a flat tire, like we could have, we can help with that. You know, we can put a plug in it or we can get you a new tire, you know? And, and that's, that goes a long way with the family. And now she's like, and then little Johnny's like, Oh, I don't want to go to green break project today. And, and mom's like, well, you, you're going because they helped us get a new tire and which helped me go back to work, you know? So you were, you were coaching, mentoring, doing, um, the uh, early release programmer uh, and the fix it guy for all the problems. Like yeah, that, I mean, that's a lot of hats to wear. I mean, Justin and I, we were the fundraisers, the coaches, the problem solvers. Justin had took, you know, I'm, I'm a lot like this guy. It's like, we're doers. Right. And he just took 6k out of his bank account. And just start, you know, he was like, Oh, I just want to, start this, this Greenberry project and, and do proof of concept and then let people see and then jump on board instead of doing, you know, a lot of nonprofits, they start, they do, they start with paperwork and uh, I'm, I'm not good at paperwork. So I'm good <laughs> at coaching. I'm good at doing. So we start doing and people start noticing and uh, you know, eventually people want to get on board and they, you know, all kinds of people have different talents and, you know, people start calling you like, Hey, can we coach kids doing this? Or, or I work at this bank and I can help you get this grant. And, and then you get more people on board and, and, you know, up to date, you know, we have, you know, we're having jujitsu practice. We're having CrossFit practice. I don't even have to coach right now, which is fantastic. Um, we got people writing grants for us. Um, got people nationally, you know, doing stuff for us. I mean, it's, so, it's. Easy. So are you full time now with the Green Beret project? So the story gets a little crazier. You probably won't even believe this if I tell you, <laughs> tell you anyway. So time goes on. I was at the foreman job somehow, you know, I got a full-time job as a CrossFit coach that lasted for like a year and a half. And then, and then, my, my buddy, Justin, he, he calls me up one day. He said, I bought a landscaping company. This isn't the wild part yet. This was wild, but not the unbelievable part. So he bought a landscaping company. We had a subsidiary for-profit business under our 501c3. So everything that we made profit went directly back into the nonprofit. But I was able to pay my salary through cutting grass. We had 75 accounts, and I only used the boys to work for me. It was nuts for a year. We had 75 yards to cut every 10 days. 
and I had a di- I had a 350 diesel pickup, a trailer, zero t- two zero turns. I taught a kid how to drive a zero turn. You know, I had a team of weed whackers. I already knew I'd do all this stuff. I learned in prison, right? So I just <laughs> took that skill and just, you know, put it in. So that lasted for a year. December 1st of 2018, this is the crazy part. The United States Attorney of Delaware gets grant money from the United States Department of Justice to do Project Safe Neighborhoods. All 94 districts across the country get this Project Safe Neighborhood money. This Project project Safe Neighborhood money usually goes to a nonprofit or some police agency. Our U.S. Attorney of Delaware, who's a fantastic guy, says, I want to hire two ex-offenders. And, and they're like, well, we don't think that's a good idea. And he's like, it, it doesn't matter. Like, I'm the U.S. attorney and I'm going to do what I want. I have vetted these two ex-offenders. So he calls me up and he said, hey, what would you think about me paying your salary? And you go lower gun violence in Dover, Delaware. And I'm like, that's, so you're telling me the guy that was in charge of the federal prosecutor of my <laughs> case wants to hire me? Okay. <laughs> Let me see the, let me see this in writing, you know? And uh, so December 1st, 2018, the United States attorney started paying my salary and he oh still is up to, up to date. He still is. So lowering gun violence, we went back and forth with everybody kind of thought lowering gun violence means, um, you know, at first they were like, well, we're going to get a bunch of heroin addicts into, uh, mental health services. And I said, well, you got the wrong guy. That's not who I am. So I'm telling you right now, I'm coaching kids that are 12 years old that have gun cases. Coaching kids that are 15 that have killed people. All right. These are the people that need to be coached. These are the, this young generation, you know, if there's an 18, 19, 20 year old and they're part of gun violence, it's like, you just got to let them go. Let them run the gauntlet. Let them go to prison. Catch them on the flip side. But let's, let's take this younger generation and coach as many of these young guys that are growing up in housing authority neighborhoods that don't have fathers, don't have a man telling them what to do, don't have a man being direct and, and stern with them, right? But at the same time, loving. These are the kids that need to be helped. So they start saying, oh, okay. And then I, you know, I have to fill out tons of reports because it's the government. So, you know, I'm like, hey, man, I, I you know, there was a, there was a, ready to be a fight the other day. There's like 25 kids. And, and I broke that up because I knew like 15 of them. I was able to go out there, scream and yell like a coach would scream and yell. And those boys were like, Oh, okay, Kramer. Okay. And you know, I don't know what happened after that, but I know in that moment, 25 kids didn't get shot stabbed, Right. Because, because of the relationship piece of it, they have enough respect for me not to do that. Um, and there's, you know, I could go on and on with different violent stories that I've been able to break up just because I know people, you know, it's like, Hey man, you know, I rolled up to a house, the 16 year old was ready to, he was ready to fight with his sister's boyfriend, you know, when it was ready to get super violent, I knew there were guns in the house. And I just looked at this young man, shook my head and went like this. And he grabbed his book bag, and got my car and left. That was that. Maybe nothing was going to happen. Who knows? But it's the preventative measure piece. So currently getting paid by the United States attorney to do a lot of stuff. We partner with the Greenberry Project. And then I get a supplemental income from Greenberry Project 
And, you know, that's where, you know, we have a gym. We have two gyms in Wilmington, Delaware, a gym in Georgetown, Delaware, and we have a youth center in Dover, Delaware, and we have a gym in St. Louis, Missouri. So how, so, did, how did the St. Louis, Missouri thing come about? Where's that connection? Um, so a uh, gold star mother uh, called the Greenberry Project. She had heard about us through the grapevine. Unfortunately, her son, you know, he was killed in action um, a, one year ago. And his dying wishes were, so that, back it up a second. He grew up in Germany with his mother. His father was a soldier from St. Louis. 32 years ago, they had a baby. So this, this guy, this fallen soldier had grew up in Germany, but he had traveled back and forth to St. Louis his whole life. His dad was from a rough neighborhood in St. Louis. So this guy always saw his nieces and nephews and cousins growing up in poverty, and he, he wanted to help them. And his plan was when he was going to retire from the Army, that he was going to go back to St. Louis and start a nonprofit to help his nieces and nephews. And uh, unfortunately, like I said, he was, he was killed in action. And she had called us and said, look, in, in memory of my son, I, wanna, I want you guys to help, you know, remember him. And, and I like what you guys are doing. So let's, let's talk about starting something. And we were like, great, we really need that money in Delaware. And she was like, no, it's got to be St. Louis. And I was like, I've never been there before. So Justin and I, because we are who we are, I said, I'll just go out there. I'll just go to like 15 CrossFit gyms in a week. There's like 40 of them out there. I'll, I guarantee you I'll meet somebody somehow. Within three days, we had a building. And we had CrossFit coaches, Ray to Rock. Um, I met a local agent out there who's also a CrossFitter. She's wonderful. She has been coaching kids out there. So what happened was, you know, that all happened in October. So in November, we had the building and the partnership. That's where the story comes in. I took a Suburban, uh, 4, we took our grass cutting trailer, put 4,000 pounds of CrossFit equipment in there. I convinced four mothers to let me take their boys over to Thanksgiving break. And we drove to St. Louis and we stopped at Rogue on the way. It was pretty cool. But, <laughs> and, um, and Rogue treated you pretty well while you're here. Yeah. Rogue. Cause, cause I am well. in Columbus just to yeah. let people know. Yeah. So, I mean, Columbus, I've never been there either, but we rolled right up to the Rogue factory, got a tour of the of immaculate factory, which is pretty cool. Cause I'm, I have a little bit of a manufacturing background. Dan Bailey coached us up and uh, we hit the road. They gave us a free sweatshirt and we hit the road. It's pretty cool. You got to work out in that big, huge gym for the well, employees. Well, no, there's actually an employee's gym in oh, the yeah. back. Ah. So they got the gym that they use for the public out front, but in the back, they got a gym. They got another gym and that's the gym we worked out in. It's still pretty big. I mean, it's probably 10,000 square feet, but yeah has nothing on the gym out, out in the showroom. Well, wow. I don't even know what to say. That That's an amazing story. The whole, the whole thing. I'm just, I'm just blown away. Isn't it crazy? Yeah. So Adam, I mean, obviously your story is starting to get out there a little bit more mainstream. You've been on a couple other podcasts and I know CrossFit actually um, reposted on their social media last week, the interview you did with Nicole, um, a coin. And, uh, you know, what, what do you need? Like what, how can we help, you know, the people that are listening, like, 
if they want to start something like this in their own place, like how do they get involved? Or if you've got, I know, you know, you need money obviously to, to yeah. continue your efforts, but what are some things that people can do to get involved? Well, to get involved with the Green Bray project, I would say, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's really a demographic thing too, you know, kind of depending where you're at um, with, like if, if you live close to a housing authority, I would say that's the best place to start. You just go to the local housing authority and a lot of times they will let you use, we just started using one of their rooms, you know, we're using a, a field and you just bring a football, bring a, a medicine ball, some kettlebells and kids will flock to you. And then you start, you know, and then, and then, you know, we brought like the local Trader Joe's gives us truck fulls of uh, groceries every Monday and Friday. So I just, literally this was a week ago we went out to one of the other housing authority neighborhoods we took a football a med ball and a box of bananas and there was like 30 kids out there it was crazy and and you just start building relationships and, and being consistent so and then it is fun after you build relationships with them to bring them back to the local gym wherever that is and kind of bring them outside the neighborhood um and then here in delaware we're we're in the middle of building two pole barns that we're going to convert into gyms. And we're in the middle of, uh, we're working with another partner, Second Chance Farms, who does vertical farming and helps ex-offenders, all the ex-offenders do their job, do the vertical farming. And then we're building a gym at that facility as well. And, uh, you know, we do need a couple more dollars for the pole barn and, and the uh, the outfit of the Second Chance Farms gym, but do you have a website that people can go to and make a donation if need be? It's uh, just very simple: greenberetproject.org. Awesome. Yeah. So I'll go ahead and I'll put that on the screen so people can see it. Yeah, uh, awesome. And we've got a check for you, Adam, for, you know, it's not a lot, but we sold those end racism t-shirts um, after the whole George Floyd thing came about. And uh, I'm getting my check this week. So I will send nice. that over to you as well. Appreciate that. Yeah. Anything we can, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a rich person, but I got, I got some time and I got some ideas. Okay. So any way I can help. Time, ideas, marketing, all that stuff helps. You know, everybody come, because it's really a collaborative framework. It's right in our, our mission. You know, you, you gather the local community and Kat's good at something, Scott's good at something, and Adam's good at something. Right. You know, and, and how do we, you know, we don't want to force anybody to do something they're not good at. So it's like, oh, well, you're good at teaching squats. You know, this is just, a, you know, example. You know, yeah. You're good at bench, you're good at squats, and I'm good at kettlebell swings. Well, then let's teach, let's teach the kids that. So, yeah. You know, and it's and it's so much more than that too, right? I mean, not just yeah. the exercise, but it's the mentorship right. I mean, and the relationships, so the connections. If anybody's listening from Beckley, West Virginia, or Winchester, Kentucky, mm. I will be driving a Ford F two fifty diesel with a camper on the back of it that a local RV park has rented to us for free for a week. We're driving to Beckley, West Virginia, with ten boys and. Uh, we're going to do some whitewater rafting on Thursday. And then we're going to drive on to Kentucky to do some uh, survival camp camping by the river. It's going to be pretty awesome. Awesome. Yeah. You spent, you, you definitely time, you know, you give all of your time to these, these boys, these young men. It's awesome. Well, I'm just honored uh, to meet you, Adam. It, and I'm so glad that you took some time out for us. 
Yeah, it's pretty awesome. I had to come out to Columbus. Yeah, come ahead. I'm sure you're, that, that stuff's needed here so much. But uh, we don't want to keep you too much longer. Thank you for giving us an hour today to, to talk about all this. And what a great project that you're, you're a part of. Um, and what a crazy story. Uh, I love the fact that you're getting paid by the people who prosecuted you. Yeah, um, it's, it's cool because I'm speaking at the United States Attorney's Conference in Dallas in <laughs> September. So there'll be all the, all the people will be there from the whole country. Pretty cool. That's pretty oh, awesome. Well, what, what a testimony and what a redemption story. And I'm so glad you shared that with us. Yeah. Appreciate you giving me the outlet to do so. Thanks and so much, buddy. Yeah. And hopefully we'll get to talk to you soon. Yeah. Okay. See you later. All right. That was really nice of Adam to give us more than an hour of time to talk about his, his amazing project. Uh, and what he's doing for the youth uh, in this country. Don't forget to hit that subscribe, people. Um, it is, we're getting really good human interest stories the last couple weeks, and you don't want to miss to see what we're going to get next. So hit that subscribe button, leave a comment, hit the like button, and we'll see you next time on the Clydesdale Fitness and Friends. See ya. Thank you for joining us on the Clydesdale Fitness and Friends podcast. Remember, you can find us now on YouTube as well as all major podcast platforms. Please go ahead and hit that subscribe button on whatever platform you use and consider giving us a five-star rating. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you next time on the Clydesdale Fitness and Friends.